Please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21 this morning. Revelation chapter 21. Starting in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, and there shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And His bondservants shall serve Him. And they shall see His face. And His name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. Let me ask you this morning, when is the last time you heard a message series on heaven? When is the last time you did an in-depth Bible study on heaven? When is the last time you heard a new contemporary song that was written about the subject of heaven? When is the last time you learned something new about heaven that you never knew before? When is the last time you read a book about heaven? You know, given the subject, you would think that heaven would be one of the most favorite subjects of the believer to study. After all, what could be more uplifting? What could be more inspiring? What could be more encouraging than to contemplate a life without end, a life without suffering, a life without sin, a life without sickness? What could be more delightful for the believer in Christ than to study about, read about, ponder about, meditate on this glorious subject of heaven. It may surprise you then to find that heaven is one of the more neglected doctrines in the church today. If we are honest, we know that many Christians know more about the differences between cessationist and non-cessationist theology than they do about the doctrine of heaven. Many Christians know more about the pros and cons of different worship styles, 
traditional versus contemporary, hymns versus choruses, than they do about the doctrine of heaven. Many Christians can explain a view of men's and women's roles, egalitarian versus complementarian, better than they can explain their future eternity on the new earth. Many Christians have heard more sermons on hell than they have on heaven. And even sermons on hell are very few and far between. In 1937, Scottish theologian John Bailey said this, I will not ask how often during the last 25 years you and I have listened to an old-style warning against the flames of hell. I will not even ask how many sermons have been preached in our hearing about a future day of reckoning when men shall reap according to they have sown. It will be enough to ask how many preachers during these years have dwelt on the joy of heavenly rest with anything like the old ardent love and impatient longing. What Bailey was saying is that in his day, preaching on heaven was few and far between. There were far more messages on hell than there were on heaven. In our day, both doctrines are sadly neglected, but our particular focus is on the doctrine of heaven. Why is this? Why the neglect of the doctrine of heaven? Well, I thought about this for a little bit. And I thought perhaps we're afraid of becoming so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. Have you ever heard that? We don't want to become too heavenly minded because then we'll become no earthly good. But if we're honest with ourselves, brothers and sisters, this shouldn't worry us. Most of us, if we are honest, are so earthly minded that we are no heavenly good. And the truth is that we will never become heavenly good until we are earthly minded. C.S. Lewis said this, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. What Lewis was saying is that we need to become heavenly minded if we are to be any earthly good. That the key to the Christian life is to understand and apply the doctrine of heaven. Jonathan Edwards in his famous resolutions wrote this, Resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. He knew that his effectiveness and impact here on earth was related to how his heart was set upon heaven the only way to become any earthly good was to become heavenly minded so maybe we think we don't study the doctrine of heaven because we're afraid of becoming too heavenly minded will be no earthly good that shouldn't concern us i sat back and thought maybe another reason why we may neglect the doctrine of heaven maybe we think the bible doesn't have all that much to say about heaven Maybe we think that, well, the Bible just doesn't say that much about it, so we shouldn't study it, we shouldn't carefully investigate it, and we shouldn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about it. But if we search the Scriptures, we'll find that this isn't true. 
Even the Old Testament saints knew enough about heaven to long for it, to set their hearts on it, to meditate on it, to seek after it. And they didn't have the full glories of New Testament revelation. Psalm 23, 6, David says, Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Job said in Job 19.25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take a stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Hebrews 11 verse 13 says, All these, referring to the Old Testament saints, all these Old Testament saints died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been seeking of that country from which they sent out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared a city for them you see even Old Testament saints who didn't have the book of Revelation who didn't have the fullness of New Testament Revelation knew enough about heaven to long for it to seek for it to set their hearts there to delight in it so maybe we don't study about heaven because we're so afraid of becoming heavenly minded will be no earthly good Maybe we don't study about heaven because we erroneously think, well, the Bible doesn't have too much to say about it. A third possible reason why we might neglect the doctrine of heaven. Maybe we don't think heaven is all that much of a practical subject to study. I mean, we're all going to get there eventually, right? But while we're here on earth, we've got a lot of things to take care of. I mean, we've got to take care of our finances. We've got to take care of our work. We've got to take care of our church. We've got to take care of our relationships. I mean, we have a lot of practical subjects here on earth to study. I mean, we just don't have time to think about this subject that is kind of non-practical in nature. I mean, I know heaven is there and I know I need to long for it, but it can really wait. There's no real urgency to study about it. But dear Christian, have you noticed how the Bible ties together our heavenly theology with our earthly walk in a way that is inseparable? Have you noticed that when the Bible talks about practical Christian living, it ties it together with our future eternity in heaven so that you cannot separate the two? In fact, if you study the Bible closely, you will find the themes of heavenly glory and earthly practical living are really one and the same. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 6:19, "Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, for your where your treasure is there your heart will be also." What Jesus was saying there is that you will not know, Christian, how to manage your pocketbook or manage your money until you understand a theology of heaven. Paul said in Philippians 3 verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, my, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, 
In this way, in light of what I have just said, stand firm in the Lord. And then in chapter 4, he goes on to talk about relationships. He goes on to talk about attitudes. He goes on to talk about prayer and contentment, all the practical issues of the Christian life. What Paul was saying there is you can't live your life here on earth until you realize your true life is not here on earth. You will stand firm and be strong in your Christian life when you understand and apply the doctrine of heaven. There's that classic passage in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, where Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now, He who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. You say, what gave Paul such courage, such strength, such stamina to live the Christian life here on earth, and Paul would answer, it's my doctrine of heaven. It was his heavenly theology that made him strong and gave him fortitude to endure through the trials and tribulations of life. So maybe we don't study about heaven because we are afraid of becoming too heavenly minded. Maybe we don't study about it because we erroneously think the Bible doesn't have all that much to say about it. Maybe we think that it has no practical value when it does. There's only one other reason I can think of why we don't study about heaven more often and with more intensity. And that is maybe we think we've learned enough about heaven. After all, maybe you're coming to this series this morning and you're saying, Dan, I know that heaven is the dwelling place of God. I know that heaven is a place where there is no sin. I know heaven is a place where the song of praise goes on forever and ever. Isn't that enough? Isn't that all I really need to know about heaven? Could I say this morning that the answer is no? Would it surprise you if I said that many Christians, if not most Christians, have a surprisingly inaccurate view of heaven. Even after affirming all those basic truths that we've just mentioned. It really isn't surprising, is it? I mean, if we don't study about heaven, and if we don't talk about heaven, if we don't sing about it, if we don't read about it, if we don't do Bible studies about it, it isn't surprising to find that many Christians get their view of heaven not from the Bible but from the world. From other religions. Even from consumer pop culture. Randy Alcorn wrote a book on heaven. Maybe you've read it. 
This book is the inspiration for this series. I'll be drawing much from his reflections on heaven. And he writes in this book that many Christians' view of heaven is borrowed more from Eastern mysticism than from biblical Christianity. Let me ask for a little bit of audience participation this morning. Don't worry, we're not going to do anything weird. I just want to ask you to participate from, for a moment. What I want you to do is to take 10 seconds to close your eyes with me. Don't worry, I'm not going to do anything to you. Just close your eyes for 10 seconds. What I want you to do is for 10 seconds, do your best to imagine heaven. Okay, ready? Ready, set, go. 10 seconds. All right, great job. Participation is over, okay? I promise you I wouldn't, wouldn't do anything weird. Let me ask you, in those 10 seconds, as you imagined heaven, what did you see? What did you imagine? Now, if you're like me and many other Christians, what you may have imagined in those 10 seconds may have fallen to one of three camps. Let me list them for you. The first camp is what I call the twilight zone view of heaven. Twilight zone view of heaven. In this view, if you're in this camp, you close your eyes for 10 seconds. As you try to imagine heaven, you really couldn't see much. It was kind of dark and just black maybe. Maybe if you saw anything, it was a little bit fuzzy. What you saw was a black and white distorted picture. Maybe you saw an image here or an image there, but by and large, what you saw was something fuzzy. That's the twilight zone view of heaven. The second camp is what I might call the Casper the ghost view of heaven. The Casper the ghost view of heaven. In this view of heaven, when you close your eyes in those 10 seconds, what you saw was a group of disembodied spirits possibly floating around in a cloud. And if you've listened to a lot of contemporary culture, they may have been playing harps as they floated around on those clouds. In this view of heaven, there is no earth. There is no physicality. There is no material nature. There is nothing but spirits floating around in a cloud for all Eternity. This was the view of popular cartoonist Gary Larson, who pictured heaven in one of his far side cartoons. In it, a man with angel wings and a halo sits on a cloud doing nothing with no one nearby. He has the expression of someone marooned on a desert island with absolutely nothing to do. And a caption shows his inner thoughts. Wish I had brought a magazine. That's the Casper the Ghost view of heaven. A third camp. This is what I might call the endless church service view of heaven. (laughs) The endless church service view of heaven. In this view of heaven, you are in an endless church service where the hymns never end, going on for all of eternity, forever and ever. John Eldridge, in his work, The Journey of Desire, wrote this. Nearly every Christian I've spoken with has some idea that eternity is an unending church service. We have settled on an image of the never-ending sing-song in the sky, 
one great hymn after another forever and ever. Amen. And our heart sinks. Forever and ever. That's it. That's the good news. And then we sigh and feel guilty that we are not more spiritual. We lose heart and we turn once more to the present to find what life we can. In the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Mark Twain portrays a similar view of heaven. The Christian spinster, Miss Watson, takes a dim view of Huck's fun-loving spirit and she tells Huck, she went, according to Huck, she went on and told me all about the good place. She said all the body would have to do there was to go around all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever, so I didn't think much about it. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by considerable sight, and I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. I mean, we understand that, right? What normal teenager wants to go to a place where they're going to sit in hard pews, wear stiff collars, and sing old hymns forever and ever without end. I mean, if you are honest with me, you would say, Dan, I mean, I love our church services, I love the preaching, but 90 minutes to two hours is enough. I mean, we don't need to go on forever and ever. Most of our imaginations, if we are honest, tend toward one of these three camps. Either the Twilight Zone view of heaven, the Casper the Ghost view of heaven, or the endless church service view of heaven. And yet, can I say to you this morning, that none of these are an accurate biblical description of heaven. You see, it's possible to affirm the basic truths about heaven, that heaven is a place where we live forever, that heaven is a place where we see God, that heaven is a place without sin, while still not having an accurate theology of heaven. Now, why is this important? It's important because of this. A weak theology of heaven equals... A weak desire for heaven. A weak theology of heaven equals a weak desire for heaven. If you don't have an accurate understanding of what heaven is like, you're not going to want to go there. If when you think of heaven, you see a twilight zone, big fuzzy picture. If you think of heaven, you see a bunch of ghosts floating around in a cloud with nothing to do. If you look at heaven, you see an endless church service where we sing hymns forever and ever. Let's be honest. You don't have a great desire to go there. And you can fake it and you can say, well, no, I love God and I want to go to heaven. But if that's what you think of when you go to heaven, your desires are going to be very weak because your theology of heaven is very weak. C.S. Lewis said this, most of us find it very difficult to want heaven at all, except insofar as heaven means meeting again our friends who have died. One reason for this difficulty is that we have not been trained. Our whole education tends to fix our minds on this world. Another reason is that when the real want for heaven is present in us, we do not recognize it let's be honest if you had a choice this morning of being on this earth and living your life and going to twilight zone or living your life and being a casper the ghost 
bored with nothing to do or living your life today or being in an endless church service, most of us would say, I would rather choose my life here on earth. And it would make sense. But the good news I have for you this morning is that that's not an accurate view of heaven. And if you had an accurate view of heaven and a strong theology of heaven, what would be in your heart would be a strong desire to be there. And you would say with Paul, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, because it is far better to be in heaven than to be in this sin-cursed world. A weak theology of heaven equals a weak desire for heaven. And let me take it a step further. A weak desire for heaven, I believe, equals a strong desire for this world by default. I believe that one of the contributing factors to the church's worldliness and materialism is an inadequate, inaccurate theology of heaven. If we really study the doctrine of heaven, if we really spend time meditating on it, enriching our understanding of it, if we really sang songs about it and longed to be there, I believe what you would see in the church is a decreasing love for the world, a decreasing love for sin, a decreasing love for material possessions, and a decreasing love for the present world system. Not by telling people to stay away from these things, but for showing them there is something that is far better than what this world could ever offer you. God has prepared a much better place for us than this. And when you study about that place and set your heart in that place, when you gain an increasingly detailed view of that place, you will begin to see your heart change. And what you will find is a decreasing desire for the things of this world. A strong desire, theology of heaven equals a strong desire for heaven. And that's what this message series is really about. What we want at Cornerstone Bible Church is we want this church to be strong. And the way that God wants it to be strong. We want to experience a decreasing desire for material things, a decreasing desire for the world. And my heart for this church is that it would be our doctrine of heaven that would release our hearts from all the lies that this world is shouting at you every day. And that we would say with Paul, far better to depart and to be with Christ. The early church in Hebrews 10.34 understood this. It said there, they joyfully accepted the seizure of their property. Why? Because they love to have their homes taken away? Because they love to have their possessions taken away? Who in their right mind, if someone came to you and took your home, took your possessions, took your car, would say, praise God, I received this with joy. How did the early church do this? It says there that they knew that they had for themselves a better possession and an abiding one. It was their doctrine of heaven that released their hearts from bondage to material things. Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, when he faced possible death and was imprisoned for his faith, he said, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Why? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul looked at this bleak and dark circumstance and he didn't have a pity party and he didn't say, feel sorry for me. He said, look, I'm in this bleak circumstance. I'm unjustly prisoned. And guess what? No matter what happens in this circumstance, I win. 
And I will rejoice in that because if I stay and they let me live, I get to minister for the gospel. If I die and they chop off my head, I get to go and be with Christ and be in heaven. I win. And so I rejoice and I will rejoice no matter what happens in this life. Wow, what strength the doctrine of heaven brought to Paul's heart in the darkest of circumstances. You see, a strong theology of heaven equals a strong church. And that's why Paul said in Colossians 3, chapter 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, for Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. I looked at that verse and I said, that is a biblical warrant, if not a biblical mandate for a message series like this where we set our hearts on things above, not the things on earth. Randy Alcorn said it best, we were made for a person and we were made for a place. Jesus is that person and heaven is that place. We will never be satisfied by any person other than Jesus and we will never be satisfied by any other place than heaven. Now let me begin our study on heaven by just introducing to you a basic definition of heaven that we'll be unpacking in the weeks to come. A basic definition of heaven that is going to serve as the framework for the study that we'll be doing these next five sessions. What is heaven? Heaven is a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Christ. That's our basic thesis, our basic definition. Heaven is a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Christ. Let's just unpack that definition. There, you'll notice in that definition four features of heaven that we'll unpack together as we begin our series. First of all, what is heaven? Heaven is a resurrected life. It is a resurrected life. And by a resurrected life, we mean eternal life. The life that has been given to us by grace in Jesus Christ. 1 John 5 verse 11 says, and the testimony is this, that God has given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You'll notice there that John does not say that we will get eternal life when we die. He says we have eternal life today. If you're a believer in Christ, eternal life is pictured as the present, abiding possession of the believer in Christ. In other words, if you want to draw a timeline of when eternal life starts and when it ends, you don't draw a timeline between physical death and eternity. You draw a timeline between the moment of your conversion into eternity. Because at the moment of conversion, God gives those who believe in Jesus Christ eternal life. And that life is never ending. And that life is pictured as a resurrected life because as Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God made us alive in Christ. You see, the basic idea of, 
of heaven is that it is life. It is eternal life. And that eternal life begins at the moment of our conversion when we trust in Jesus Christ. John 17.3 says, This is the eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The essence of this eternal life that has been given to us in Christ is the knowledge, personal knowledge of God. So first of all, what is heaven? Heaven is a resurrected life. Let's look at a second feature in that definition. A resurrected body. A resurrected body. Heaven is a resurrected life in a resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Sleep is a biblical euphemism for physical death. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all we made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Paul describes the resurrection of Jesus Christ as, note that term carefully, the first fruits. It is the first fruits of those who are asleep, those who have experienced physical death. What is the first fruits? It was simply the first installment of a harvest that was to come. If you picture a giant harvest of apples, and what would they do is they would take maybe a, a couple baskets of that giant harvest and they would say, here are the apples. This is the first fruits. Or a giant, if you can imagine, a giant harvest of oranges. And as the first fruits, they would maybe take a couple baskets and they would take some oranges and say, this is the first fruits. This is the first installment of that harvest. Now think through that picture for a minute. You don't go into an orange harvest and get apples as the first fruit, do you? You don't go into an apple harvest and get oranges as the first fruit. What does the harvest look like? What is the greater harvest going to be like when you finally get to it? It is going to look like those first few baskets that you take out of it. It's going to look like the first fruits. Now what Paul is saying here is something very important and very necessary for our theology of heaven. What he says here is that Christ is the first fruits of those who are asleep. In other words, what there's going to be in the future is this massive harvest of physical resurrections of believers. And what is that harvest going to look like? Look at the first fruits. The first fruits is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul's point in using this analogy is to highlight the correspondence between the physical resurrection of believers in the future and the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ in the past. What will our physical resurrection be like? Look at the first fruits. Look at the first fruits. Now for a moment, think of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. When Jesus was resurrected from the grave, was he resurrected as a ghost? 
Was He resurrected as a spirit being? Was He resurrected into some non-earthly, mystical being that nobody could recognize? No. In Luke 24, 39, He said to the disciples, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. What kinds of things did Jesus do in that time period after his resurrection? Well, he ate in Luke 24:43. He talked. He stood, he showed people his hands and his feet. In John 21:12, he made breakfast. He had conversations. He sat on a beach and called out to a boat. He gave instructions on how to go fishing. He prepared a charcoal fire. He took bread and fish and distributed them to his disciples. Here's the question. If Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits of our future resurrection, what on earth are we doing imagining heaven as a realm of disembodied spirits? You see, the Bible clearly teaches that heaven will not only be a resurrected life, it will be a resurrected life in a resurrected body. It will be a body as real and as physical and as tangible as the physical resurrected body of Jesus Christ after His resurrection. You might have some questions this morning. Will I eat in heaven? Well, Jesus did in His resurrected body. Will I talk in heaven? Jesus did after He was resurrected. Will I stand? Will I walk? Will I serve other saints? Jesus did in His resurrected body. Will people be able to recognize me in heaven? They recognize Jesus when He was resurrected. Will I be able to recognize other people in heaven? Again, they recognize Jesus in His resurrected body. Will I walk and talk and have conversations with people in heaven? Will I prepare other people meals and perceive physical distance and physical proximity? Jesus did all of those things in His resurrected body. And Paul says, you want to know what the future resurrection of believers is going to be like? Look at the first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits. It's a harvest of apples. Here's the first apples. Look at the first fruits and you will see what the physical resurrection will be like. At some point, we fall here into the realm of speculation, and yet I submit to you that it is much more biblical to imagine heaven as a place where we walk, talk, eat, serve, recognize other believers, perceive physical proximity and physical distance than to imagine heaven as a realm of disembodied spirits. You see, heaven will be a resurrected life in a resurrected body. In other words, it will be a real and physical existence yet without the effects of the curse and sin. And let me tell you, church family, this is where the study gets fun. What would your body be like without the effects of sin? What would your present physical body be like transformed and glorified without the effects of aging, without the effects of disease, without the effects of sickness or pain. Just think of it. No more doctors. No more physical therapy. No more dentists or optometrists 
or physical trainers or special diet because everything is physical and yet everything is perfect. By the way, there's going to be a lot of people out of work in heaven. No more lawyers, doctors, dentists, optometrists, policemen, firemen, pastors, missionaries, insurance companies, or pharmacists will be all out of a job. And you won't miss it because you'll be too wrapped up enjoying your resurrected life in a resurrected body. You know, I can't wait. You know, I've spent time just thinking about my future resurrected body. I don't know if you've ever done this. You have biblical encouragement to do so. Okay? But I have dreamt about my future physical resurrected body. You see, growing up, I was always picked last. On Whenever any athletic game was played, I was always last or second to last. And I have dreamt about this. When I get to heaven... Maybe, guy can dream, right? Maybe in my future resurrected body, I'm actually going to be athletic. And I'm even more encouraged by this because the Bible says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And I was picked <laughs> lots of times last here on earth. And maybe when I get to heaven, maybe I'll be picked first. And I've actually watched athletes, and I've watched Kobe and LeBron dunk their basketballs, and I've watched the Olympians do their thing, and I've watched all these great football stars, and I have watched that on TV, and sometimes I have sat back and said, just wait till you see me in my future (laughs) resurrected body. You might think that it's crazy to think this way, but it's not. You see, the Bible tells us We will not only have a resurrected life, we will be in a resurrected body. And if there is resurrected basketball in heaven, and why shouldn't there be? I can't wait to get on the court and finally have some skills. You see, we have this strange idea of heaven that is a vague, ethereal, mystical experience when the Bible clearly says, look, You want to know what heaven is like? It is not only a resurrected life, it's in a resurrected body. You want to know what that body is going to be like? Look at the first fruits, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What was his body like? Well, he ate, he talked, he walked, he conversed, people recognized him, he recognized other people. We will be in a physical existence. And you say, Dan, why are you belaboring this point? Why is this so important? It's important because of this. If you have a view of heaven that is non-physical, you as a human being will not desire to go there. Fish do not long to live out of water. Cats do not long to live under the ground. We desire to live in the environment that we were first created for. And when God made us as humans, He formed us of the dust from the ground and He made us into physical beings. And so it makes sense that when God says this is going to be your eternity in heaven, He doesn't ask us to long for an existence in an environment that is totally foreign to our experience. This doctrine of heaven's physicality is so important to shepherd your own heart. Because if you don't have this understanding of heaven, 
you will have very weak desires to go there. Heaven is a resurrected life in a resurrected body. Johnny Erickson Tata has said this, Somewhere in my broken, paralyzed body is the seed of what I shall become. The paralysis makes what I am to become all the more grand when you contrast atrophied, useless legs against splendorous, resurrected legs. I am convinced that if there are mirrors in heaven, and why not, the image I'll see will be unmistakably Johnny, although a much better, brighter Johnny. See, isn't that good? Isn't that sweet to the soul? You say, am I going to know you in heaven? Am I going to know your faces? Are you going to know me? Are you going to be recognized me? Look at the first fruits. When they saw Jesus, they recognized him. There will be a one-to-one correspondence between your present physical body and your future glorified physical body, and yet it will be free from the effects of sin and the curse. One writer imagines heaven in this way. Imagine people smiling and joyful, not angry, depressed, and empty. Think of friends or family members who love Jesus and are with Him now. Picture them with you, walking together in this place. All of you have powerful bodies, stronger than those of an Olympic decathlete. You are laughing, playing, talking, and reminiscing. You reach up to a tree to pick an apple or orange. You take a bite. It's so sweet that it's startling. You've never tasted anything so good. At last, you're in the place you were meant to be. Everywhere you go, there will be new people and places to enjoy, new things to discover. What's that you smell a feast a party's ahead and you're invited there's exploration and work to be done and you can't wait to get started brothers and sisters we have biblical basis to imagine heaven this way because heaven is a resurrected life in a resurrected body which leads us to a third part in the definition heaven is a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth it is on a resurrected earth Going back to Genesis 1.1, God created the world. He saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. In the beginning of the Bible, God created a beautiful physical earth, free from the effects of sin. He created vegetation, animals, plants, oceans, trees, birds, sea monsters, rivers, vegetation that was pleasing to the sight and good for food. He said it was all good. He put man in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Sin enters into the picture in Genesis chapter 3. The whole story of the Bible from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 is the drama of sin and how Jesus comes to save us from that sin. In Revelation 20, Satan and unbelievers are judged. Uh, The sin-cursed world flees away from the great white throne. And in Revelation 21.1, we read this. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. Let me ask you, when I say I'm going to buy a new car, what am I going to buy? I'm going to buy a car. When you say I'm going to move into a new house, what am I moving into? A house. When Coca-Cola came out with a new Coke, what product did they come out with? Coke. When God says He is going to make a new earth, what is He going to make? He's going to make an earth. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Scripture plainly teaches that our resurrected life will not only take place in a resurrected body, it will also take place on a resurrected earth. It will be a new earth, as real and as physical and as tangible, perfectly suited for our future resurrected bodies. It's going to be glorious. 
you look at the world today and take a look around you. If you're a nature lover, you've gone on hikes as I have, and I've gone up to the hikes of Half Dome. I've seen the Grand Canyon. I've watched the seas, and I've looked at all the beautiful things on this earth today. I have stood amazed at just the wonder and the splendor of the physical earth that God has created. This is a world, I remind you, that is under the effects of sin and the curse. Picture it all recreated without the effects of sin and of the curse. And if this physical creation is so beautiful and so pleasing to our eyes, how much more will the new earth be? It will be absolutely glorious. Martin Lloyd-Jones has written, everything will be glorified, even nature itself, and that seems to be the biblical teaching about the eternal state, that what we call heaven is life in this perfect world as God intended humanity to live it when he put Adam in paradise in the beginning Adam fell and all fell with him but men and women are meant to live in the body and will live in a glorified body in a glorified world and God will be with them you see God is not only going to make us new bodies he's going to make us a new earth Randy Alcorn said this, The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. For unbelievers, this life is the closest they will come to heaven. What I'm saying to you is that the first thing we need to do when we imagine heaven is not to imagine a vague, ethereal, mystical existence. What we need to do is take a look at the world around us and imagine it all recreated without the effects of sin. Because God has said He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. I used to listen to the songs of Rich Mullen and there was one song that I really liked and that I struggled with because the lyrics went like this, land of my sojourn, nobody tells you when you are born here how much you'll come to love it and how you'll never belong here. So I'll call you my country and I'll be lonely for my home and I wish I could take you there with me. And I always just struggle with those lyrics and say, isn't that unbiblical? Isn't that unscriptural to look at the world and to say, oh, I want to take you to heaven with me. I don't want to leave you. I want to take the earth with me. And the truth of the matter is, if we understood an accurate theology of heaven, we would understand that when we look at the earth and see the beauty of the earth, what we are doing is we are actually catching a faint glimpse of the beauty of heaven. And when we have that longing and that pleasure in our heart, when we see a beautiful sunset or when we see the vast ocean or when we see the Grand Canyon or on the top of a mountain peak and we say, wow, this is amazing what God has done. What we are doing is we are actually longing for the future new earth which will be our home for all of eternity, which will be a real physical existence yet without the effects of sin. Heaven will be a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth. A fourth feature of that definition. It will be with a resurrected Christ. With a resurrected Christ. What is heaven? Heaven is a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Christ. Jesus said in John 14, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. When Jesus speaks these words, the disciples here are coming to their end of three years of following Christ. For three years they have followed Him. For three years they have lived with Him. They have ate with Him. They have slept with Him. They have talked with Him. He has been their life. And He has said to them at the end of three years, I'm going away. I'm going away. Where you go, you cannot follow me now. You shall follow later. I am going away. And these disciples at the end of three years, they must have panicked at that thought. In their heart, there must have been anxiety. What do you mean you're going away? What do you mean you're leaving us? What do you mean you're our life? You're our Lord. You're our Savior. What do you mean you're going away? And he says, I'm leaving you. And they must have panicked in their hearts. And Jesus speaks to them these words in John 14. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. I'm going away that I'll prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and get you. And when I come and get you, I'm going to take you to the place that I've made for you that where I am, you will be also. These words must have spoken so much comfort to their hearts and these words speak comfort to our hearts. 2,000 years later, Jesus says to us, I've gone away, but I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to come get you that where I am, you may be also. Heaven will be a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Christ. We will be with Christ just as intimately and as personally as the disciples were with Jesus on that day. We will be with the one who has loved us and who has died for us. We will be with the one who is the shepherd of our souls. And get this, brothers and sisters, some of us cringe at this thought that we're going to be with Jesus because we understand that we're sinful and we're ashamed of our sin and we can't bear the thought of actually looking into Jesus' eyes and Jesus seeing us for who we are. But get this, brothers and sisters, that when we die and we go to be with Jesus Christ in heaven, we will be glorified. And we will not only be saved from the penalty and the power of sin, but we will be saved from the presence of sin. And we will be able to enjoy that intimate communion and relationship with Christ unhindered by the effects of sin. That's why Paul said in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because if I die, I will be like Christ and be with Christ. Heaven will be the resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Christ. And can I give you a bonus feature? I just can't resist this. Heaven will be a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Christ accompanied by other resurrected believers. Accompanied by other resurrected believers. Believers. Scripture teaches us that we will not only experience the fulfillment of our relationship with God in heaven, but also the fulfillment of our relationships with one another. Luke 16:9, Jesus said, Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwelling. Jesus says that use your money in this life to win souls because you know what's going to happen is that when you get to heaven there's going to be souls who have been won through the material resources that you have given and you know what they're going to do? They're going to actually be there to welcome you into the eternal dwellings. And they will recognize you and you will recognize them. 
And we will see the fulfillment of not only our relationship with Christ, but our relationship with one another. Jonathan Edwards said this, Every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is a ransom spirit waiting to welcome us in heaven. There the Christian father and mother and wife and child and friend with whom we shall renew the holy fellowship of the saints which was interrupted by death here but shall be commenced again in the upper sanctuary and then shall never end. Heaven will be the great reunion. Families, mothers, fathers, brothers and sisters who have passed away in Christ will all join together in perfect fellowship and we will give praise to our God together. Heaven is a resurrected life in a resurrected body on a resurrected earth with a resurrected Christ accompanied by other resurrected believers. And this is a subject I can't wait to study with you these next four weeks. Randy Alcorn told the story of a young Florence Chadwick who stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island. She was determined to swim to the shore of mainland California in 1952 She had already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather that day was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her, yet still she swam for 15 hours. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother in a boat alongside told her she was close and that she could make it. And finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. And it wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the astonishing truth that the shore was less than a half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said this, All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore... I would have made it. Dear Christian friend, brothers and sisters, maybe this message series finds you in the midst of some fog. The fog of uncertainty, the fog of sorrow, the fog of disease, the fog of death, the fog of broken relationships, the fog of trials and tribulations. The good news is that God wants you to see the shore. And I pray that this message series will help you see the shore as we look at the doctrine of heaven and turn our hearts toward home. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, what can we say to these things except to thank you and to praise you? What amazing grace you have shown to us. And we can't wait. Father, next, use this next month in our hearts and our lives that our hearts will be turned toward the home that you have made for us, that we would be strengthened to live lives glorifying to Christ here on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.